This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by the Nudge Podcast, hosted by Phil Agnew and brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. You can learn the science behind great marketing with bite-sized 20-minute episodes packed with practical advice from admired marketers and behavioral scientists. Nudge is a fast-paced but still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Her recent issue talked about the, the idea of getting your customers, your prospects in the habit of buying from you or listening to you or following you, habit-based marketing. Download Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jance and my guest today is Brad Feld. He's been an early stage investor and entrepreneur since 1987, co-founder of Foundry, Mobus Venture Capital and Techstars, but he's also the author of a number of books, including one we're going to talk about today, Startup Boards, A Field Guide to Building and Leading an Effective Board of Directors. So Brad, welcome back to the show. It's great to be 4,000 feet below you. Can't Actually, always... I, I think I'd rather be 4,000 feet higher than I am right now. I'd rather be <laughs> a little toasty out there. So I have authors back that update books quite often. And sort of the logical sort of cliche question <laughs> has to be, you know, why a second edition? If I own the first edition, what am I going to get by getting the next one? A couple of things. First, the first edition of Startup Boards was good, but I was not proud of it. It was a unique book. There really weren't any books written for entrepreneurs right. about boards, but I wrote it during a time period that I went through a six-month depressive episode. <clears throat> I was very functional, but it was a real grind, and I wasn't really enjoying the, the work of the book. My co-author at the time, Mahendra, did a great job, including putting up with me. But in the end, you know, when I reflected on the book and read it, you know, I usually read a book I write a year later and just sort of think about it. Again, good, but it wasn't one where I'm like, wow, I'm really proud of it. So we took the opportunity to really improve it. We added a third co-author, co-author Matt Blumberg, who I'm sure we'll talk about. And Matt really was extremely helpful. But I was also very motivated to turn it into a great book this time around. The other big thing was that we wrote the book in 2013. And the book didn't age well in terms of temporary yeah. boards. And specifically, we had a bunch of sidebars from board members and CEOs and experienced entrepreneurs, and almost all of them were from men. And we had a bunch of quotes, and they were also almost all from men. And so when we started talking to people about a second edition of the book, a couple of the women that we reached out to you know, made comments like, one, one of them said, I don't encounter a woman until page 82 in your book. And so it doesn't really make me feel like the book's for me. And of yeah. course, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the last three or four years about diversity, both gender and racial on boards. And that would be an example of the book not aging well. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so we took advantage of writing a second edition to really change the voices, change the language. I discovered a pronoun dynamic called the singular they, which is totally fascinating. And sort of I went down a multi-hour rabbit hole on the evolution of the English language. And it turns out the singular they is a much more accessible way to write than alternating he and she or yeah. trying to do he and she or he slash she. Yeah, it gets a little clunky, doesn't it? Yeah. And on top of all of it, right, you also have people who are who don't identify as either he or she at this point. Just making the book accessible in a way where the idea of a board uh, and being on a board is something that anyone should feel like in the context of entrepreneur 
ship it, it talks to. A handful of other things that we really improved. Yeah. We made chapters a lot shorter. We refactored a lot of stuff in terms of how we organized the thinking. The first book had much too high a wall to climb. Every book I've ever written, you know, you try to get the reader into the book in the first 50 to 100 pages right. without making the wall too high. And then you can, after 50, 60, 70 pages, start introducing some stuff that is a little bit harder, a little chewier. We had too much chewy stuff up front. Yeah. That's interesting. My last book, my editor said, we need to take this stuff in the back and put it in the front. I mean, it was the first time I've really, and that was really the idea. It's like, you really give the value of the book here, you know, say it in the first paragraph, you know, so people get in right away. Yep. You also did a lot of research between 2013 and 2022, wherever we are today on kind of the evolution of boards in general, haven't you? Yeah, although I would say most of my research has been living it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been on boards, you know, going back to 1994 was my first board. Shortly after I sold my first company, I guess I was on the board of my first company, but we didn't really, we didn't have a board. We had three founders and it was myself, my partner and my dad, and we were the board. But I joined a private company board in 94. That was incredibly enlightening experience. And it was a lot of fun. There were some definite challenges. And in the end, the company got acquired and it was a good outcome. And so I felt like I participated and contributed meaningfully. But then since then, both private company boards and public company boards, I've been on a large number of them. And I don't have any idea what the number is. It's, you know, the wide range would be greater than a hundred, less than a thousand. And I've been on some spectacular boards. I've been on some tragically awful boards. The vast majority of boards I've been on have been somewhere in the middle. They've been, you know, adequate. And I've spent a lot of time as a board member individually, but also as a participant in a board, reflecting on what makes both a good board member, but also makes a good board Yeah, where the board is a team. And I've tried to weave a lot of that experience into this book. And this is another place where Matt, Matt Blumberg was really helpful for two reasons. One is um, he's been a multi-time CEO. So he's had several boards. I was on his board of his prior company, Return Path, which he ran for 19 years or 20 years. I was on it for 19 years. So a very long experience with him. And that was his first company. His company that he runs now is a company called Bolster, which is an executive marketplace for both full-time and fractional execs, including board members. And so he spent a lot of time thinking hard about not just what makes a good board member, but how somebody becomes board ready. And so all of that kind of experiential research was what came into the book versus a bunch of academic research, you know, that says, yeah. this is, you know, we did a statistical study and blah, or qualitative assertions, not based off of lots of experience. So, so the book is mostly about what you should do, but I find that people, you can get leverage if you actually talk about the problem <laughs> with most boards, like the mistakes they're making. So, so, you know, what are the problems that, that, if somebody buys this idea of, oh yeah, I need a board because people say I should, what are the mistakes they make? Yeah, well, we have a fair amount of that in the book too, yeah. because we've tried to balance it between positive and negative. And we also tried not to be in the language of you should, you know, in terms of it more giving people a framing of how to think about it. But to the specific question, there are some very simple things that people make mistakes around when they think about the board, including reasons why early stage entrepreneurs and startup entrepreneurs don't create boards. One of the mistakes is this sort of desire or need for control. Mm. And this view is that I want to control my company and therefore I want to control my board and sort of the implications of that. Another example of a mistake is to not think of the board as a team. 
but to think of them as individuals. And Jeff Lawson, who we quote in the book, had a great quote for this, which is, he says, I get to build two teams, my leadership team and my board. And yeah, my board can fire me. So I need to just sort of deal with that reality, but that's fine. You know, until they fire me, I have an opportunity to build a second team that can really help me and the company be successful. Another mistake people make is, and this is sort of a cliche, it's become cliche. You say to an entrepreneur, well, who do you want to add to your board? And they say, well, I want to make sure that I get, you know, I want diversity on my board, but I want to get someone who's been on a bunch of boards and has been a CEO multiple times. I'm like, all right, so, you know, you're already starting with a pool that's smaller because you're trying yeah, to get yeah, a pool yeah. of non-white men, for example. And, you know, all the people that have those characteristics are already on too many boards because there's a lot of demand for them. And so you're not really sort of thinking about it from the standpoint of what functional value do you want to get out of the board member versus the, you know, the sort of reputational value. And I could keep going. The last I'd end with though here, which I think is really interesting, it was interesting when it came up. Matt came up with an idea that he calls the rule of one and or the rules of one. And fundamentally, boards become very imbalanced. Uh, a lot of times founders try to control the boards at yeah. the beginning, and then you start raising money from VCs. And with each round, another VC ends up on the board. And all of a sudden you got founders on the boards and VCs on the board. And it's just not a healthy board. You're not building a team that's a board. And so Matt's rule of one includes the idea that for every VC that you add to the board, you add an independent director. Mm. And his idea of a balanced board is the CEO, who could also be the founder, and then an independent director and a VC director. And for every VC director, you add an independent director. Now, there are definitely, I don't necessarily agree with him that there should only be the CEO on the board, especially if the CEO is not the founder. A lot of times there's a lot of value to have a second founder on the board, or if the CEO is not a founder. But his framework was really helpful, like in clarifying this idea that even at the very beginning, you're trying to build this team of highly effective participants rather than create a control dynamic or defend against a control. And now let's hear from a sponsor. You know, today everybody's online, but are they finding your website? Grab the online spotlight and your customer's attention with SEMrush. From content and SEO to ads and social media, SEMrush is your one-stop shop for online marketing. Build, manage, and measure campaigns across all channels faster and easier. Are you ready to take your business to the next level? Get seen? Get SEMrush. Visit SEMrush, that's S-E-M-Rush.com slash go to try it free for seven days. So at what point do you tell people they need one? I mean, should somebody have an idea for a business and start thinking a board's going to be an aspect of it? Well, from a purely legal perspective, once you create your company formally, whether it's a you know incorporated or it's an LLC or even an S corp, by definition, your company has a legal thing called a board that might have one yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. You. My general view is, if your intention is to grow your business beyond just you, having a board from the early stages is very helpful. Um, at the minimum, it gives you a group of people other than you and your founder or founders to engage with you as you're thinking through the business. It also creates some accountability for communication and some rigor around stepping back and thinking about what's going on with your business. There are plenty of people who think that, you know, creating a board at the earliest stages is too early. I just don't. I've never, I've seen the opposite happen so many more times, which is delaying creating a board results in the company going off the rails. Yeah. I very rarely, there, I can think of a few cases where board was not, you know, was harmful to a very young company for some reason, but very few. Most of the time, if the board members know that their job is to help the founders be successful, 
Their job is not to torture the founders. Their job is not a purely governance one because there's just not a lot of governance stuff that needs to happen at the very early stages. If you have the right mindset as a board member, which is you have some formal responsibilities, but really your job here is to help the entrepreneurs be successful. Yeah. Uh, early board can be very powerful. So a little bit of the flip side of that, are there things that need to be in place if you're a startup company? I mean, rather than saying, yeah, let's just go get a board. I mean, are there some things that you need to have worked out first? I mean, it, sure, but not in a, so again, other than the legal creation of yeah, a formal yeah. company, yeah, not really. I mean, most of the time when you create a board, even if it's relatively early in your life, you're going to create some structure around that board. You're going to create indemnification agreements so the director's liabilities are covered by the company. You're probably going to have some rules of engagement for how the board members and the company interact, whether even if they're informal you know, you're going to want to be in a position where you can grant equity uh, to board members for service, because generally speaking for private boards, you know, you should compensate your board members with, you know, a, a non-zero but modest amount of equity for their board service. So, but, you know, it's very variable. I mean, I think about situations where a lot of times at the very early stages, somebody says, well, I'm going to just create a bunch of advisors or an advisor. Right. And that's fine. And we talk about that in the book. Like, that's a useful sort of way to wander into creating a formal board with the nuance that if you create something like an advisory board, be serious about it Yeah. versus just having lists of advisors that you can put on your website, you know, to yeah. give you social, social benefit, but nothing right. else. So what should a board, I guess this could go either way. What should a board member expect to bring? So like if I'm asked to be on a board, what should be expected of me and vice versa? If I'm a founder, you know, what am I expecting a board member to ultimately contribute? I think there's two different, two different things to ponder. One is uh, what your role and your own expectation and your philosophy of how you're going to show up as a board member. So I'll just describe mine. I think everybody can define their own, but here's how I define mine. When I'm on a board, I really only want to make one decision. And that decision is whether or not I support the CEO. Huh. If I support her, my job is to work for her. If for some reason I stop supporting her because of whatever's going on, my job is to try to get back to a place where I support her. And that doesn't always happen. I mean, the one decision that I want to make as a board member is, do I support the CEO? And if I ultimately don't, the one tool I generally have as a board member, not unilaterally, but as a member of a group of people would be to replace a CEO. So I bring that mindset because every CEO I've ever worked with needs different things. And the idea that I'm showing up with the generic playbook of right. Just not EO should look at look at their board from the frame of reference of I want to get different things from different board members. And ultimately, I want that board to be a functioning team. So, for example, if you add people to your board and every single person on your board is a deal junkie, loves to do transactions, loves to buy and sell companies, loves to do deals. Guess what? Your board is always going to be pushing you to do deals yeah. and you're always going to be spending too much time talking about doing deals. If your board is full of people who are finance, financial oriented, either investor or CFO types, you're going to spend an awful lot of time on your financials. Yeah. Having a blend of people that have product experience, go to market experience, yeah, right. finance experience, 
deal, legal, whatever, and having that spread across the board so that the board really can bring different things is powerful. And I think this then comes to the other piece of this, which is a lot of people add board members because they want help with networking or they want help with financing or raising money. And most good board members can be helpful with that. But if that's the primary reason you want that person on the board and there's nothing else that is causing you to want to add that person to the board, it's worth rethinking whether that's the best person for the board relative to the other things that somebody could be bringing. So you mentioned the idea of this being a team, a board. How important is it that they like each other, that they you know, that they respect each other? Is that important, really? I'm going to separate respect and like. You should. <laughs> I think that's the key nuance. I think respect is critical. If you don't respect each other as board members, you've got a fundamental problem. And I have definitely been on boards where there were people who didn't respect each other. And, you know, that created a lot of dissonance and in a lot of cases, just fundamental dysfunction when you ran into situations that were challenging and difficult. Right. That's in the context of respect. I've also been on boards where people, you know, people lied, people were disingenuous, people, you know, did things behind other people's backs, whether it was the CEO or, or board members that were very destructive and very hurtful to the company, not just emotionally hurtful, yeah. but fundamentally problematic. Th those things are, I mean, those things exist. Those are problems. And the tone of the board and the tone set by the, whether it's the chair or the CEO or the lead director, whoever is responsible for driving the board behavior, that, that has to be paid attention to. I'll separate that from like. I definitely have been on lots of boards of people who I would consider them business associates, but they're not friends. Yeah. And they probably consider me a business associate, not a friend. Or they're people who you get along with, but you know, you don't want to spend time with them. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is people who you have just real genuine affection for. Yeah. And, you know, you're emotionally engaged with and, you know, in a like kind of way. So I, I think it's critical that every board member respect every other board member. I don't think it's necessary that every board member like every other board member, but it sure does help when in a team, like any team, right. if even if you don't necessarily quote, like the person, if you don't at the same time, don't hate the person, <laughs> right? It doesn't have to be the opposite of it. You yeah. can, you know, all right, this person's fine. And I, but I respect them and I respect what they're bringing here. That works. Yeah, absolutely. So Brad, tell people where they can find more about startup boards and really the work you're doing. I think you're doing work with Bolster with Matt as as well. Is yeah, I'm right? an investor. I'm an investor in Matt's company, Bolster. Yeah. The book's available, you know, online at any online bookstore that you happen to like. It's called Startup Boards. And if you just do Startup Boards Feld as a search, I'm sure it'll show up. The Google will deliver you lots mm -hmm. of choices. We we also at Feld.com, which is my blog, I've got links to all the books I've written. So it's got a link to Startup Boards there with a bunch of additional content. And and then Matt's company, Bolster, it's uh, bolster.com. He's got various, again, links there. And he's written two other books, one called Startup CEO and one called Startup CXO. Mm. And they're both really effective books if you're a startup CEO or you're an executive at a startup for helping sort of process through and think through different ways uh, to approach your job and the role and responsibility that they have in these three books, Startup CEO, CXO, and Startup Boards are kind of a trilogy makes me think of Tolkien. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't put myself in that category, but it's sort of a trilogy of things for any CEO or executive to really absorb. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, 
Thanks for taking time to stop by the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast, and uh, hopefully we'll see you one of these days out in the mountains. John, it's always a pleasure. Hey, and one final thing before you go. You know how I talk about marketing strategy, strategy before tactics. Well, sometimes it can be hard to understand where you stand in that, what needs to be done with regard to creating a marketing strategy. So we created a free tool for you. It's called the Marketing Strategy Assessment. You can find it at marketingassessment.co, not .com, .co. Check out our free marketing assessment and learn where you are with your strategy today. That's just marketingassessment.co. I'd love to chat with you about the results that you get.